Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. My friends, I'm glad to be with you. We're back. Another couple of weeks has ended, and we are uh, in the saddle, ready to talk about a lot of uh, highs and lows. But before we get into it, I realize we didn't talk do any small talk last time. How 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 on earth are you? Uh, we're good. Things are plugging along in Houston. Kids are back in school. Um, you know, there's. I don't, we don't have any complaints on our end. It's there's no hurricane headed our way, so we're about a week right from that anniversary, somewhere in there. I think it made landfall on the seventeenth, but it it then progressed to Houston. Yeah, kind of around the Sunday. We're doing a little Harvey remembrance thing on Sunday for people who were affected and volunteered and that sort of thing. Mm. Well, RJ, anything to report on your end? We're doing okay. Uh, today was uh, Marshall's uh, first official day of preschool. Uh, it was supposed to be yesterday, but of course he got sick, uh, which caused my wife some great consternation. <laughs> you know, <laughs> why? No. Uh, but he went today and had a great time. And our eighth grader starts tomorrow, and our junior started yesterday, and he's not happy. He's he's he was stressed out to begin with, um, but tried to go to school with a positive attitude. And then, literally, like every teacher and the head of the upper school and some seniors were like, "Welcome to the hardest year of your life." Never forget, never forget that Buffy the Vampire Slayer decided to situate a hell mouth right underneath a uh, high school. That was uh, <laughs> the sort of definitive statement. <laughs> Sunnydale High School was was doubled as the entrance to hell. hell. Yeah. Um, and in fact, the kind of uh, poor poor Spencer, your middle child, but I thought we, we could lead in with this. Maybe he's getting some sort of a sign and we should be picking up on it. This is from McSweeney's, if by, written by Ginny Hogan. I am the universe and humans are correctly interpreting my signs. Uh, she goes on to sort of give all of these instances. Here's one. Mark absolutely needs to quit his job today. I actually promised this girl in Syracuse's position, so I need to clear out some space. Here's a thought. Maybe if I have four different people mention Tahiti to Mark, he'll know I'm sending him a sign. Not to take a vacation. I'd have to send a sign to his parents to wire him $4,000, but just to, like, live differently. Mark's a smart guy. He'll take the hint and leave without giving his two weeks notice. And then perhaps my favorite is, uh, Trisha really should not exercise this morning. If she does, death will befall her entire family. How do I let her know that this morning she absolutely must skip the gym? I know. I'll send a very light drizzle of rain lasting no more than seven minutes. That'll keep her in bed. Um, I, maybe they're funnier on paper. I don't know. But this is a, it's a kind of a list of all the things we overinterpret. Uh, the universe being uh, kind of our euphemism for God and that we think, you know, uh, if, if we can't find a parking space within, you know, two minutes, then maybe we were never meant to attend uh, that party or that church service or whatever it may be. Do you guys, um, are, you, are you good at reading signs? No, I mean, no, I'm not. Um, 
I I love this piece because the universe language kind of drives me crazy. Like when people are like, I just wish the universe would give me a sign or the universe told me today or, and, and I mean that first of all drives me nuts because, um, you know, a friend pointed out to me one time because I said the universe is a mean place. And he said, well, actually, um, it's worse than that. The universe doesn't even care, right? Like you're talking about like planets and like dark matter and like knowing like, the universe doesn't care. The universe what is actively I, trying to kill you. Right. Entropy. What I, Entropy what is I, a thing. Yes. What I love about this, though, is that the universe actually comes across as very anxious and needy. You know what I mean? (laughs) The last one's like, it's critical that Ryan pressed press snooze this morning. I mean, not to toot my own horn, but I actually can sort out the whole Israeli-Palestinian conflict if only Ryan stays in bed for five more minutes. Like, it almost (laughs) is like the the universe has like a really... um, uh, maybe like a TMI Instagram account in this piece. You know what I mean? It's, it's oversharing its anxiety. Pretty yeah. amazing. I did this yesterday because I was driving home with my 16-year-old and I was riding shotgun and he was driving and I was sort of, I, I went to go help him and pick him up so I could show him how to get home from his school because it's about 15 miles away or 10 miles away. It's a little complicated. There's a highway involved. Anyway, he took a wrong turn, which put us in like, massively more traffic than we would have been in otherwise, which is somewhat frustrating. But I was like, well, I guess we were meant to go this way and would have died in a horrible, fiery wreck if we'd gone the other way, you know? So totally did that. Uh, But what it also reminded me of, which drives me a little bit nuts, is when people who either aren't religious or don't want to appear religious, they won't say, well, I'm praying for you. They'll say, I'm sending good thoughts your way. Sending good thoughts. And it's like, like what the heck do you think your thoughts are going to do? Like you, you think you can, uh, you know, control reality with the power of your mind, because that's essentially what you're saying. And it just is, I I understand it. And it's a sweet thing to say. I don't want to be too critical. Uh, but, but, you know, praying at least you're saying this is totally out of my control, but maybe God can do something, but I'm sending good thoughts your way. Like, give me, give me a break. How how important and uh, powerful do you think you are? And of course the answer is not at all, you know, but we hunger Mm. to be, uh, you know, significant and important. And, um, anyway, so that was my other I have a memory of being at church as a child and a man whose wife had been diagnosed with cancer was explaining the severity of his situation and someone standing there, another adult said to him, we're going to keep you in our thoughts. And he turned and looked at this adult and said, I'm going to need you to do more than that. (laughs) (laughs) I think, actually, I think it's okay to, you know, it is okay to say, I I mean, I think we need to, you know, we we may maybe need more, you know, I mean, let's think about the other things that like are in our thoughts. You know what I mean? Like the trick. Well, let let me say two things. I think, uh, all right. My the rector at our church, the head pastor Paul Walker, just got back from a four month sabbatical, and uh, the day that he came back, the roof over where he sits in his office caved in. <laughs> and time to retire. I mean, everyone, everyone was like, "Well, is it a sign?" And you're thinking, uh, "I hope it's not a sign." He was the two days before he was having to bail out his basement that had gotten flooded from this record amount of rain. So I'm thinking about that and how oftentimes uh, this, the signs that the that the McSweeney's articles list tend to all be sort of justifications for sleeping in longer or or buying the purse you can't afford or d- dumping uh, the girl that you you know that you're sort of being capricious with. And uh, some, sometimes there's, we also have these signs that are almost apocalyptic. And you're right, when we just use this universe language, it gets uh, uh, fuzzy and uh, 
flaky, I guess you'd say, sending your thoughts. It's, it's like a Mork and Mindy thing. But they, um, uh, I also was thinking that, you know, I do believe that God, you know, sometimes you get, what, what are they, maybe the cheesy word for it is like a little hug or something like that. I, I, this week was the first day of school for my boys. And last year was not the easiest year with one of them. And we weren't quite sure. And then we got, went to this open house and it was just one thing after another where we felt cared for, anticipated, uh, um, delivered. Uh, I don't know. And my wife and I left and felt, you know, like, it's like I haven't felt God's provision that directly mm. in a visceral, emotional way. Um, maybe, I don't know if it's a sign. Maybe it's just a, a wonder. But it's, uh, it's, it's funny how the culture sort of takes these things and like perverts them or overemphasizes them. And I thought it was a pretty funny uh, way to do that. The last thing it made me think was that there have been moments in my life when I was trying to make very difficult, life-altering decisions. And I was looking for a sign. I was looking for some clear direction and didn't necessarily get it. But at that, I remember at one critical juncture, um, again, one of a coworker, Jonathan Adams, I think this is the second week I've, I've mentioned him at St. Martin's. Uh, he and I have been close friends for a long time. And, and he sort of said to me, RJ, remember... Whichever choice you make, God's going to be there. Like, God is with you either way. You know, it's not like he's, he's waiting to see what choice you're going to make and then decide, you know, whether to abandon you or be with you. He's going to be there on the other side. Um, and I, you know, I'm not sure I believe, I mean, I believe him cognitively, maybe not emotionally. But of course, that was true. You know, that, that what we in Christians, we don't believe that God sort of sends us signs about the decisions we should make necessarily. But what we do believe, as Jesus says, you know, lo, I am with you until the end of the age. Um, and I find that much more um, comforting, uh, less anxiety producing, and also more, you know, humbling, uh, humility producing. Because at the end of the day, the choices that we make, like, don't actually matter that much. But what does matter is um, God's eternal uh, love, you know, and, and that he, his plans move forward, um, even if ours are a bit uh, sort of winding. Yes, I think it's, I remember, was it Tim Keller says, if you want to know what God's will for your life is, make a decision and see what happens. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, seriously. Uh, the, it's, thank you for sharing that. I think that this could have, uh, I don't know, uh, cultural self-justifications, though. We go from one uh, to the next. Here with Alana Samuels for The Atlantic wrote about how online shopping and cheap prices are turning Americans into hoarders. And, you know, that article's kind of half um, alarmist, almost environmentalist uh, plea. And then there's also this sort of exploration of our psychology around shopping and I, I wonder I, I don't think we talk about it quite enough as uh, you know a lot of us uh, have Amazon Prime and you know pretty much everyone does they even talked about how most families under who make less than $25,000 a year still have Amazon Prime it's crazy uh, but they're quoting a um, the director of retail studies at Columbia University Mark Cohen who says we are all accumulating mountains of things. It's never been easier to buy things. The number of self-storage units is rapidly increasing. There are about 52,000 such facilities nationally. Two decades ago, there were half that number. Then they give an example of the 16,000 students who live in dorms at Michigan State University left behind 147,946 pounds of goods, like clothing, towels, and appliances when they moved out this year. A 40% increase from 2016, according to Kat Cooper, a spokesman, uh, spokeswoman. Um, 
The internet has made it easier to recycle some of the stuff Americans buy and are no longer want. Uh, online consignment shops like ThreadUp and Poshmark help people buy and sell clothes from their closets. But the ability to get rid of stuff uh, may be making people feel a little better about buying things they don't need and motivating them to buy even more. Isn't that interesting, that last little bit? Are you guys supporters? Are you shopaholics? What, what's your... Uh, I certainly indulge in retail therapy uh, when it relates to music pretty much every day. I'm on Amazon. I think all mothers are probably on Amazon a lot. Like I feel, especially this time of year, because they need all this back to school stuff. And you, I mean, I marvel at that my mother used to go out and buy these things. And now they're like right there. And this year was like, you know, our daughter's four. And um, when you have a girl, there's this weird thing of like modesty that if they're in a school uniform you still want their underwear covered up which for the longest time I've been like this is so dumb and it's really hot in Houston like why am I going to put her in another layer of clothing but I was like on there shopping for something else and it like popped up on the side these little black shorts and now I have spent like a lot more money than I want to say out loud on little black shorts to go under a school uniform and I like it's stuff like that I'm like is this like, are we all just convincing ourselves that we need all these things and now they're easy to get and so we get them? Like, it's just, I don't know. I found this article really kind of, like, overwhelming. Uh, all the numbers that she lists, the environmental impact. And and then just, like, what is... There was a that whole movement a couple of months ago that I was reading pieces about. Is it in Sweden, the Swedish death cleaning? Where, like, you clean your house... Um, like uh, you start cleaning your house when you hit like 50 as like keeping in mind that you will die. And, um, I just look around my house right now and I'm like, I must think I'm going to live forever. You know, it's a lot of stuff. So Amazon is great, right? It saves you trips to Walmart or CVS or Target or wherever you go. Uh, it also, for me, I like the fact that I can just buy one thing. Whereas when you step into a shop, you're sort of like, oh, maybe I need that too. It's a little bit more, uh, targeted. Um, but, uh, but it does remind me that if you were to come up with one word which most succinctly captures sort of 21st century American identity, it's consumer, right? That's what we do. We, we consume. Uh, I think about um, 9-11. You know, I, was, I moved into New York the week after 9-11. And what was, you know, what can we do for the city? Visit New York and spend money, you know, which was, you know, sh- show, you know show the terrorists that life goes on, which I get that. Um, but there was definitely a, like, be a consumer in New York, bring your dollars to New York, or, or even um, however you felt feel about the, um, you know, the Iraq war. I remember we were sort of going to war in Iraq at the same time that we were pushing through a big tax cut. Um, and there was a sense of, like, you know, keep on spending, keep the economy going, like, keep on buying. And so it's no, uh, it's, it's no wonder that that's what people do, because that's really how, that's what unifies us as Americans, if nothing else, is that we buy stuff and we... Um, that's how we relate to the world, how we relate to one another. Um, and I'm certainly subject to that. I, I like buying stuff as well. Um, am I a hoarder? I hope not. Gosh, we, used, we had a storage unit until recently, but we emptied it out, thank God, and took like, you know, buckets of stuff over to uh, Goodwill. But there's certainly the temptation because there's just, there's a lot of cool stuff I want. Well, let me ask you this. Are, do you guys feel guilty about the stuff you buy or the amount of stuff you buy? Yeah, I mean, I feel guilty, like, about a lot of things. So <laughs> I definitely feel guilty. <laughs> I definitely feel guilty about, uh, yeah, about the stuff that I buy. I mean, that's, that's like, I mean, when I click on this stuff, on, I mean, I love Amazon. Like, RJ, it's fast. It's 
comes to your door. You're not going to spend extra money, hopefully, on other things unless it's like shorts to go under a uniform, apparently for me. But, uh, you know, then like when I buy the stuff, I think about all the little stores or even all the big box stores I'm not going in. I'm like, oh, you know, it's like the weight of like responsibility as a consumer for I don't know. It's a very complicated thing. Well, the next to last thing we're going to talk about is the cure for racism is cancer. Written by Tony Hoagland in The Sun, uh, The Houston Sun, I believe. And um, Tony is a poet that we've featured a bunch of times in the magazine. And this is quite a uh, thing that he's written. He talks about his own uh, chemo treatments. He says, this room at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston is full of people of different ages, body types, skin colors, religious preferences, mother tongues, and cultural backgrounds. Standing along one wall in work boots, denim overalls, and a hunter's camouflage hat is a white rancher in his 40s. Nervously, he shifts from foot to foot, a styrofoam cup of coffee in his hand. An elderly Chinese couple sit side by side, silently studying their phones. The husband is watching the video. The wife is the sick one, pale and gaunt. Her head droops as if she is fighting sleep. An African-American family occupies a corner. They are wearing church clothes. The older kids are supervising the younger ones while two grown women lean into their conversation. And a man in a gray sports coat, stares into space. America, that old problem of yours, racism? I have a cure for it. Get cancer. Come into these waiting rooms and clinics, the cold radiology units and the ICU cubicles. Take a walk down leukemia lane with a strange pain in your lower back and an uneasy sense of foreboding. Make an appointment for your CAT scan. Wonder what you were doing here among all these sick people, the retired telephone lineman, the grandmother, the junior high school soccer coach the mother of three. But there is good news, too. This strange country of cancer, it turns out, is the true democracy, one more real than the nation that lies outside these walls and more authentic than the lofty statements of politicians, a democracy more incontrovertible than platitudes or aspiration. In the country of cancer, everyone is simultaneously a have and a have not. In this land, no citizens are protected by property, job description, prestige, and pretensions. They're not even protected by their prejudices. Neither money nor education, greed nor ambition can alter the facts. You are all simply cancer citizens bargaining for more life. In the Republic of Cancer, uh, you might have your prejudices shattered. In the rooms of this great citadel, patients of one color are cared for by people of other colors. In elevators and operating theaters, one accent meets another. And uh, sometimes only after repetition, squeezes through the transom of comprehension. And when the nurse from the Philippines or aid from Houston's Fifth Ward or the tech named Dev says, I'll pray for you, you are filled with gratitude for their compassion. Some of the travelers are dressed in pajamas and slippers. Some have on only shiny blue track suits and Nikes. Some wear suits and ties as if being presentable will make a difference. The shabby and the affluent, the stoical and the anxious, the scrawny and the stout, the young and the aged. If we are tense or pace restlessly, it is because we are aware that we may, on short notice, be swiftly deported. And because of this, perhaps, our hearts soften. This is the stupefying and ultimately transforming thing, that here, where I do not expect it, I encounter decency, patience, compassion, warmth, good humor. I remember the shift nurse with pale olive skin and thick eyebrows, who, in the middle of the night, brought me hot packs of damp folded towels and heated in a microwave. She was from the Middle East, maybe Syria or Egypt. She was so kind and respectful to me that after she departed, I abruptly burst into tears and blew her a kiss through the closed door. So, America, I express this rather unconventional wish for you. I hope you get cancer. In order to change, you must cross this threshold, enter a condition of helplessness, 
and experience the mysterious intimacy between the sick and their caregivers, between yourself and every person who is equally laid low. Now, the two of you do a lot of uh, time, uh, spend a lot of time in hospitals visiting people. I'm wondering what you, uh, how you read this, what you took away. I had so many thoughts about this. Um, I was, I did ho- uh, hospital rounds this morning, and RJ will probably be doing them this afternoon, is my guess. And um, I'd had a pretty anxious morning. Um, I've been working on a piece that came out that caused me anxiety and I could have come into the office, but I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go to the hospital because there's something about suffering that just shifts, just shifts the whole narrative of your life. And so I was thinking about that. I know that not everybody's job like enables them to go into a hospital. And I know that perhaps people don't want to hear a priest say out loud that um, when we see people suffering, it makes us sort of realize that our own lives are perhaps not um, as dire. Our own anxieties are perhaps not as demanding as they thought they were, but I'm human. And that definitely happens to me in hospitals and I'm grateful for it. The other thing I thought about was how much we talk about the idea of um, imposter syndrome at Mockingbird. Um, And now that we're back to school and my son's at a different school and um, so he's not at our church school where I was sort of like, you know, the rector's wife and known and all these things. And so now we're um, in a different school and he's riding the bus. And so suddenly I'm in all these different communities um, where I definitely find imposter syndrome, like sort of sneaking up. Like, am I like a cool enough mom to hang out with the other moms at the bus stop? Literally have had that thought. Um, And I was, as I was reading this, I kept thinking, gosh, one of the incredible things about having this, kind of illness and all these other people having this kind of illness is that no one has imposter syndrome, right? Like everyone on that floor knows that they belong there and all the nurses and the doctors who help them know that they belong there. And there's something about all being in that, that suffering together that, um, that bonds people. Um, I love what he said about sort of cancer curing us of racism. I also loved Houston. I mean, this is a shout out because a lot of the diversity is also such a reflection of how diverse Houston is. Um, but I, I think that cancer could be in the way that he writes about it could be a cure for a lot of the things that we think, um, divide us and a lot of the moments we have in our lives. And we think, well, I don't belong here. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, cause everyone's sick on the inside. Right. <laughs> so, I just thought it was a hundred percent true. And it was funny because literally last week I was visiting a lady at MD Anderson and I'm at MD Anderson, this hospital he's talking about, you know, uh, just about every week. And she was from a, a little town in Mississippi, like a one stoplight town. And, and, uh, she went to Ole Miss, uh, just like uh, Sarah did. And she said, um, this is this place is the United Nations. She said, I've never been to a place where there's so many different types of people from all, not just all over the city, all over the country, but all over the world and how amazing that is. Uh, and I will say not every hospital is like that, actually. Like some hospitals, a lot of hospitals do actually have sort of VIP areas where, um, you know, that are reserved for certain kinds of people. But for whatever reason, um, NB Anderson is not like that and everyone is in it together. I also thought what he said about having time to think and to listen was incredibly true. Um, there have been a number of our parishioners over the years who had um, 
leukemia, you know, whose who's bone marrow uh, got infected with cancer and therefore because your bone marrow creates white blood cells, you know, it creates your immune system, you basically have to kill off your bone marrow and then reset it with like a stem cell transplant. And part of that process is going into a monastic existence for about a month while the chemo destroys your immune system. And I've often commented to people in those situations, it's like being a monk. You know, you're in one little room for a month, pretty much by yourself. If anyone can come in the room at all, they have to get, you know, gloves on, masks on, gowns on. Um, but it is true. People have time to think, to reflect, to pray. You're obviously, you feel terrible. You're resting a lot. Um, but there is, you know, as Sarah said, there's something powerful about uh, tragedy, a common tragedy, common suffering, breaking down barriers and bringing people together. And probably my, I mean, I've, I've had two powerful experiences of that, which come to mind. One was 9-11, you know, when I, I moved into the city and New York came together in a way that I think it never had before because of the shared experience. And another one was in high school uh, when we went on, a, I was in the choir, we went on like an abandoned choir trip. And the second day there, the flutist uh, dropped dead of an aneurysm. Um, and that really bound that group together in a way they never had uh, had been before. So um, as much as we try to avoid suffering, we hate suffering, we don't want suffering, we play, pray against suffering, uh, the truth is there's something about suffering that makes us more human in a weird kind of way. And it, it put things in, puts things in perspective. And, and, uh, and just to, you know, to piggyback on what Sarah said about visiting people in the hospital, yeah, just... You can get in your head in ministry, as in a lot of different things about how people are or the way things ought to be or uh, theology. I love theology, but you can get in your head. And visiting the hospitals and being with people who are suffering is incredibly grounding. And it's a reminder, okay, this is real life. This is what people are actually like. And I just can't imagine being in any kind of consistent preaching or teaching ministry if I'm not spending time with people who are suffering, because I know that I'll get into my own head and I won't be able to say anything of, of value to people who may need it. That's powerful. I mean, I, I just commend the essay. It's so beautifully written. There's so much poetry in it to anyone who's uh, at all moved by this. And, and Ethan R Richardson wrote a post about it on Mockingbird. That's where he's uh, getting this from. Which is also beautiful. His post is amazing. His post is amazing. And there's this, oh, there's another, like, the interaction that he, he has while he's wandering in the hospital at night, in the middle of the night, with this old black guy who's, who's they're, they, they sort of talking about flatulence or something like that. And it's, they're able to bond and cut through all the baloney. And, um, yeah, I wish it weren't the case that this is how we were wired, but it does seem like there is life on the other side of uh, being brought low, being laid low. Uh, but let's, let's um, I mean, we're going from one heavy thing to the next, but I think it's worth, uh, Sarah, hearing from you. You had a piece that went up this morning uh, uh, over on the Living Church said, saying the Catholic Church needs mothers. And here you are speaking about these uh, reports of horrific child abuse and molestation come out of the Pennsylvania Diocese. As the father of young boys, I just honestly, I, I, my, I read one thing, my stomach turned, and I just said I had to look away. Um, but I loved uh, reading what you had to say. Uh, will you mind paraphrasing it for us? Sure. I mean, for me, uh, I haven't read any anything i've heard sort of like a news reporter reference something which was horrific enough um 
But for me, I just had a very uh, maternal sort of like uh, response to it. Like I felt like my heart was being ripped out of my body um, at the idea that this was happening, that this has happened to so many children. And to be honest, and this is like, you know, I was going to say this is no shade on the Catholic Church, but the Catholic Church is looking kind of shady right now. Um, The response that we've gotten from a lot of the leadership in the church that I've heard who have been a lot of old dudes, uh, and I love old dudes, but it's a lot of old dudes who've been like, you know, we're going to push past this and things will be fine. And like I heard one bishop say, you know, well, I mean, the most recent one was 10 years ago as though that child is not profoundly devastated 10 years later and it just occurred to me that like the church needed a maternal they need a maternal response to this and they they needed women at the table and i think honestly i think more than just women they needed mothers at the table um you know dave dave you and i talked about how it just it could have changed that conversation um that that mothers would have said no like this is going to be with them forever like we have to stop this like and i think when you think about the history of church of the church there have been and i don't just mean catholicism but the church uh there have been these movements of mothers that have come together for the sake of children who are suffering and um i you know i I wish that for our catholic brothers and sisters and and it struck me strangely because there is such an emphasis on mary the mother of jesus in that faith tradition and um you know, I can sort of sit here as an ordained woman and guess as to the, the, because there's a lack of female leadership there that, you know, maybe we're trying to use Mary as a fill in, but, um, you know, and, until we invite her to come down and sit at a boardroom at the Vatican, um, I'm not really sure anything's going to shift. So I know that's probably too strong, but I just, you know, this is just, this is just beyond reproach. And um, there needs to be a, a seismic shift in the way that um, that things function there. And, you know, there's so much research. We've talked about it on Mockingbird over and over again. There's so much research that when we bring women into situations, and, you know, I said this in the piece, but I always want to be clear, women are just as sinful as men. Um, but when we bring women into positions of leadership, there's more compassion. There's more thinking outside the box. There's more um, ethical behavior and you know, I think, I think it's worth a shot. Um, I was talking with a buddy of mine and he was just, we were talking about, you know, the fact that they probably won't ordain women, which is cool. That's their bag. But he said, you know, even if these guys had just had wives that they'd come home to and said, Hey, so we made this decision at the office today. And like, as a wife to be like, you did what, you know, like just to have that kind of sounding board could have been could have changed the whole thing and so you know i'm a little bit like burn it all down but i know that that is like such a maternal response i mean it's like i just am like no 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 you know like um these are babies these are children this they have their whole lives to suffer with us like this is not okay so anyway it brought to my mind more that we need to reconstitute or recapture what it means to be a christian parent Because what I found with so many Bible-believing Christian parents, whether they be Protestant or Catholic or whatever, they think it's their job to be God to their kids, 
um, which is impossible and also creates incredible tension, judgment, shame, discipline, you know, distance. I, I, distance. I mean, I yeah. always felt like it wasn't, and this just came from my own experience. Um, I felt like not it was my job to be God to my sons, but to bear witness to the fact that there was a God mm-hmm. to my sons. And mm-hmm. so what that meant was, um, you know, I apologize to my kids all the time. Yeah. You know, I remember talking to a friend of mine who I felt like whose father was really wonderful when I was growing up and she had a great relationship with him. And I said, what makes your dad such a good dad? And she said, he's willing to apologize to me. He's willing to say, I'm sorry. And to me, that bears witness to the fact that I'm just a man doing my best, but there is a God who loves us and forgives us. And, uh, and I've been, you know, again, I'm going to go take it back to Fred Rogers again. I was thinking a lot about, you know, Dave, you talked a lot about masculine identity. You know, Fred Rogers was not a man's man. He wasn't. He made people deeply uncomfortable with the sort of vision of masculinity that he put forward. Um, and that's why all those myths were made up about his um, him being a Navy SEAL and his arms covered in tattoos, which is totally a myth. But I do think he actually put forward a genuinely Christian vision of what masculinity, masculinity looks like that is based in tender fatherhood, mm-hmm. that what it means to be a man, and biblically, what, what, is, what does Jesus call God? He, he calls God the Father. You know, that there's something, that if we're looking to recapture a helpful, uh, um, you know, sustainable, genuinely Christian notion of what masculinity is, and by extension, what parenthood is, I think it has to do something with, 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 with nurturing, with tenderness, with graciousness, with unconditional love, with support, with self-sacrifice, with all this sort of stuff, rather than uh, discipline, boundaries, uh, punishment, uh, you know, anger, violence, you know, these types of things. Uh, so, it might be the Catholic Church needs mothers. It might just be that it needs parents. Because mm. I'm not, you know, I think, you know, I don't know, we can debate the boundary between motherhood and fatherhood and how those roles differ. But at the end of the day, it does seem like whether or not you have children, there's something about being a human being that's about being a parent to whoever comes across your path, you know, loving them in that kind of way. Sure. I just, I guess what I would want to say about that though, is that, you know, a lot, historically, a lot of when this happened is when people, you know, the Catholic church and some of these urban communities almost served as like daycare. You know what I mean? Like for people, working parents, for single mothers, they would just drop their, their children off and assume that they were in safe and they inherently were not. And so, you know, I, 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 I hear, I totally, I totally agree. And, you know, after the piece went up, I'm like, gosh, that's a pretty strong take on motherhood and kind of excludes fatherhood of all different versions. But women, you know, in terms of, of, of encouraging organizations to take better care of people, women are actually quite good at that. And so yeah. I, I just, I, I would, I would love to see our Catholic brothers and sisters go there. I don't think we're going to see the ordination of women in our lifetime, but my prayer is that we will see priests be able to get married because I think that will change things. I, I do agree with Sarah that if a single woman had been in the room, some of this stuff uh, wouldn't have happened. I, I don't think that that makes women better than men. I, I think Mm-mm. that they have, different impulses. I don't know though. Have you seen Philomena? Like I'm just not no, so sure. I, I, no, true. I know that there are terrible mothers out there. Trust yeah. me. And, and like, you know, yeah. it, Sarah even put in her piece that like, or, or someone had told me that women are actually more likely to abuse their children than men. Yes. Four um, to- mothers are four times as likely to abuse their children than men. I don't it's know. It's true. I mean, it's, yeah. 
So I, I don't know if it's the answer is to, um, I don't know what the answer is. I know that I have a really, I always have had a hard time with the ecclesiology or the view of the priesthood in the Catholic Church. And this isn't helping things at all. Um, I, I mean, it's when you when you get people always would talk about apostolic succession to me, and all my eyes would glaze over. And then you'd read about this. I think Rod Dreher, uh, that uh, author and pundit, he uh, he talks about almost converting Catholicism, but then reading about what the sort of um, spotlight stuff and uh, and how it just it's just too guttural, uh, too visceral of reaction to have any kind of. And Andrew Sullivan wrote a wonderful thing about this. So. Um, saying that the church's moral credibility is now close to zero, all the more reason to throw open the doors and let light in, which is kind of interesting to me because I thought Francis's everything was coming out of his mouth was so, um, for a while there, it was like, wow, this man's talking about grace. He's, 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 he's really sort of moving with it. Maybe they're right. Maybe he is Jesus. With, yeah. he, with healing, <laughs> with healing in his wings constantly. And then uh, you have this. So, I don't know. I wanted. To, I did think we should close with. Uh, I'm going to read, uh, Sarah, the end of your piece, which I thought was just so mm. moving. She says, "Catholic leaders have done wrong by children, and there are, of course, by we should mention that there are uh, female religious. You know, there there are plenty of nuns out there. But Catholic leaders have done wrong by children. These leaders have taught children about their heavenly mother Mary, but they have done little to put earthly mothers in the leadership of the church." Last week, as millions of Christians celebrated the Assumption of Mary, still more horrific reports emerged from Pennsylvania diocese. I could only wonder, what is Mother Mary thinking right now? I imagine, like the mothers I know, she is weeping. A somber note to end on, but I think a proper one given the facts on the ground. the only thing I'll say to close is that uh, if you need a pick-me-up, if you need something in your hands to, um, uh, to deliver some good news, um, the Deja Vu issue of the magazine went out this week, and it is just phenomenal. The response we've been getting is, is terrific. And we do talk about um, gender in there. We talk a lot about grace. We talk a lot about uh, heavy things, but there's also so, uh, tons of lighthearted uh material and i just commend that to you you can buy it on the uh, site um but that's it for now uh i'm grateful for you both and thanks for chatting today thanks Thanks, dave thanks guys thank you for listening remember you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com and we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group, and if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Praise the Lord.